Uh, we're back in our, our series on biblical justice this morning. Um, we're going to be in Mark chapter 12, so if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to go ahead and flip there, get, get settled in that passage, and, and be ready to uh, read along as, as we work our way through it. Um, just to set the stage again, just to keep in memory what we've worked through, uh, we, we've set a view of biblical justice in contrast to social justice, right? So there's all kinds of cries in the world for justice, we're seeking to understand what the Bible really calls justice and what it calls us to as God's just people. So biblical justice will always recognize God is God and we are not. It's always going to put him premier and primary in life and, and, and humble us under him, under his authority, things like that. It will always recognize the equality of all people from all places as image bearers of God. If we begin to dehumanize or treat one another as if, some, if I'm better or you're better or someone else is better because of some aspect of their life, some socioeconomic perspective, then we've lost justice, and we're not doing justice. Biblical justice will always declare the sinfulness of sin, its offense against God, and its harm against humanity. If we begin to say that sin is not sin, then we're no longer doing biblical justice. Biblical justice will always relieve, as able, the burden of the persecuted and hold accountable the persecutor doesn't demand that we fix every problem or meet every need, but biblical justice will seek to serve those who are persecuted, who are less fortunate, and seek to be uh, generous and a blessing to them. Biblical justice will always rely on God's steadfast love and faithfulness to bring relief. The idea here is that in and of ourselves, we are not able. But as God has loved us, we can love others. As God has been steadfastly faithful towards us, we can be steadfastly faithful towards him and others. And so we rely on him for that. Two facets of biblical justice that we dealt with last week. Rectifying justice, which in the Hebrew is mishpah, in the Greek would be krisis or krima would be another word for it, would be making right judgments, verdicts, like righting wrongs, punishing wrongdoers, and caring for the victims of unjust treatment. There's another word, some people call this distributive justice, like you're distributing justice to people who are suffering injustice. This is the idea, though. It's, it's, it's making right judgments and righting wrongs. Uh, primary justice is the other facet that we looked at, and we looked at specifically last week as we talked about the endemic nature of injustice. Uh, and, and primary justice is the Hebrew word sadaka. Uh, or the Greek word dikaios, uh, in, in both cases, the idea here, and, and I take this from Tim Keller's book, Generous Justice, and he's quoting someone else as he writes it, but, but he writes, behavior that if it was prevalent in the world would render rectifying justice unnecessary because everyone would be living in a right relationship to everyone else. It's just simply living right and avoid doing any wrong. So we don't sin. Now, we know that that's not the world we live in, but that's, that's the idea of what primary justice is. And then last week, another aspect or another component of justice that we dealt with that we're going to see a contrasting or, a, or a, another view of today is personal responsibility. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know that. Romans 3.23 is clear. We saw that in Romans, Romans 1 through 3. That doesn't leave anyone out. Everyone is guilty Meaning that all of us have acted unjustly against others and all of us have suffered injustice from others. Injustice is endemic and we are all guilty. 
Every last one of us. Now, this week, we're going to turn from that and we're going to look at systemic injustice. Notice, I want you to notice, I didn't say systemic racism, although that might be a type of systemic injustice, and it may serve as an illustration. Our focus isn't limited in or to race alone. The question being, does systemic racism exist? Or can, can, is, is, is it a real thing? Like That seems to be a debate that's happening in the world around us, even in the church. It, it, is, it seems to me that it would follow logically that if all of us, if every one of us are fallen, that as we organize and as we build systems and structures to those organizations, it seems to me follow logically that, yeah, systemic injustice is a real thing, but it seems to be a debate. And so I don't want us relying on mere logic. I want us to look at biblical example, biblical teaching. So, so that's where we're going to focus. Now, before we do, I want to offer a word of, it's not really warning, it's, it's maybe caution. I, I don't know the right way to say what I'm, I, I don't, I just want to offer this word. Let me just say that. Um, and you take it as a warning or encouragement or whatever you need to take it as. Politically speaking, the left focuses primarily on systemic injustice. And, and, and they, they blame the system. And, and, they, and, and they almost focus so closely on systemic injustice that it appears that they deny or reject any personal responsibility. Politically speaking, the right, I'm not talking about the correct, I'm talking about the other side of the aisle. Not this aisle, I hope that we're all one. <laughs> you, you get what I'm saying. They focus most heavily on uh, personal responsibility to the extent that they almost deny or reject that there's any type of systemic, real systemic injustice, that it's all the person's fault and it's all about individual responsibility. We're the church. We're neither left nor we're right. In fact, we're not even on that spectrum. In Christ, because of the gospel, we are not on the spectrum, or shouldn't be, on the spectrum of political perspectives. The gospel is a whole paradigm unto itself. Right? It's not avoiding these ditches on either side of the road and trying to be centered. That's not what we're going for. We're going for gospel. We're going for in Christness. We're going for unity in Christ, seeing who he is and what he's done. And maybe tipping my hand a little bit, not only to provide a solution to personal responsibility and in the injustice as we commit against one another, but also the ways that we systemically do injustice to one another. In fact, I would suggest that to fall into either one of these camps. At best, it's just an incomplete perspective. At worst, they themselves become unjust systems. And so I want to I guard us against that. I want us to, to wrestle within our own hearts, within our own perspectives. I, I, and I just want us to sit in front of the Word and see what God uh, reveals to us. So Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through chapter 13, verse 2 it's a familiar event, a familiar set of circumstances. Um, I don't think you'll, I don't, I don't, it, this probably won't be the first time you've heard these 
these, these pass or these verses. But maybe the first time we've thought about them in terms of systemic injustice. Let's, let's, let's read. So in verse 38, it begins, and he, and in his teaching, he said, beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box, many rich people in large sums. And a, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. All she had to live on, excuse me. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Let's pray. Well, Father, help us, I pray. And by the study of your word and the, and, the, and the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our minds that you would draw us into truth. Guard me in my teaching. Guard uh, uh, the, the family here in their listening. Father, just, just stir up in us unity that we would be able to walk repentantly as we're able and that we would be able to have a, a, a broader view so that we can live just in an unjust world, so that we can develop systems and structures that are just and do justice in, in this world. I pray that you would work in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Unjust people build unjust systems and increase injustice by preferring what is just. So that the only hope of injust or the only hope of justice is found in our just King Jesus. Unjust people build unjust systems and increase injustice by perverting what is just, so that the only hope of justice is found in our just King Jesus. Without even without denying the personal responsibility, without rejecting that these scribes were individually responsible, Jesus warns all who are listening to them. All who are listening to him, beware of them and their works that actually feed on people rather than feed people. But what you'll see in a moment is Jesus isn't just dealing with the scribes. What we, you'll see as we work our way through this and we see the broader context, you're going to see that Jesus isn't just showing us the injustice of a few individuals, but denouncing a whole system that is at some point in the future going to come under God's just judgment. That took advantage of the people it was intended to serve and would face that consequence. In, in his book, uh, Why Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice, it's a book I would commend to you, S Scott David Allen writes, The biblical worldview provides a comprehensive view of the fall. It not only affects individuals, it disorders all creation. 
including human-formed organizations, systems, and structures. And he goes on to illustrate his point by pointing to things that maybe you wouldn't immediately think of as systemic injustice. But he points first and foremost to the pornography, or he points first to the pornography industry that generates more than two and a half billion dollars a year. And in one study I was looking at, that's only internet pornography. That the industry of pornography generates $12 billion a year. More than all of the major um, television stations combined. Massive, massive system of injustice. Maybe it's not what we think of because it's not governmentally oriented. It's not dealing necessarily with power and authority. But as a human system that's preying on people and committing injustices against those who participate in the making, participate by the viewing, and all the nefarious stuff that goes on around it. In addition, he points to Planned Parenthood and, and, the, and, and the abortion industry. Did you know that there have been over 62.5 million babies aborted since 1973 when the United States legalized, systemically institutionalized abortion? 62.5 million abortions since it was legalized in 1973. The number of abortions have been on decline since around... um, Oh, I've forgotten the year, but there was over a million up until like 2004. That number may not be accurate, but it's sometime in the early 2000s. Um, But over the last five to six years, there's still been over 600,000 abortions every year. In New York City, just another stat, just to demonstrate just how unjust and how much injustice is happening. Now, it's been systematized. In New York City in 2012 and 2013, the reason I call those two years out is because those are the two that I could actually confirm based on the quick research that I did. But in 2012 and 2013, black babies were more likely to be aborted than to be born. Think about that. That doesn't hold true for the whole state, although those numbers are fairly close as well. Uh, but, But in New York City, in the city proper, uh, there were more black babies aborted than born. And, and, and just to give you those numbers, so in 2012, 31,328 abortions compared to 24,758 births of black children. 2013, there were 29,007 abortions to 24,108 births. With legal force, with legal protection, we have protected the right to end the life of an unborn baby. We have protected the right to, to, to murder someone. With legal force, with legal protection, we have protected the right to pursue sexual immorality. You, you, you don't even have to get on the internet here. Like You can just drive south of town or to the east side of town, west side of town. West side of town, east side of town, you, you, you can find legally protected systems that promote sexual immorality. In, in abortion, we've begun to classify it as, as health care and preserving reproductive rights. 
Both of these, both of these are examples of systemic injustice. That's not just an organization, an individual organization, but is also legally protected. To deny that this is, to, to deny that this systemic injustice is, is, is an error. Uh, if we're going to use the same weights and measures, similar to the, to the protecting of slavery until the passing of the 13th Amendment, that that was a, an, a, a systemic injustice. But similar to those laws, no one under those laws were, were required to own slaves. It wasn't like they said, you must own slaves, but it was legally protected to buy, to own, to, to sell slaves. People. And, that, and, and that's easily agreed upon, a systemic evil, a systemic injustice. It's easily agreed upon. No one is being forced to go get an abortion. No one legally has to go get an abortion. No one legally has to participate in this sexual immorality that that is so rampantly available, so freely available to us. But they're both legally protected by our laws. Every law. Not just these two, there's more. We could go through a whole list of them. But every law that's in place, even if it doesn't require, but protects sin and sinful activity, is an example of systemic injustice. To deny that systemic injustice exists, that systemic sin, systemic evil, whatever you want to think of it as, it's an error. It's too narrow a thinking. You don't have to be woke. In fact, this is one of the frustrations I have as I think about this conversation, not in our church, but in the church at large. That if anyone starts to speak of systemic injustice, there's a, there's a tribalism happening within the church that automatically determines that they're woke, they're CR, they're critical race theory, they're what, whatever they are. Because we're so focused on personal responsibility. You don't have to be woke to see that systemic injustice is a real problem. It does exist. We need to be aware of it. And if we're ever going to live just in an unjust world, we need to understand how it affects us. And in his book, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, Thaddeus Williams seeks to define systemic injustice from a biblical perspective. Because here's the thing. There's lots of people out there screaming systemic injustice, and they're not thinking biblically at all. So I understand the concern and the risk here. I understand why we need to be cautious. We need to have our minds shaped and formed by the Scriptures. But seeking to to define this biblically, he he comes and he says, systemic injustice is is any system that either requires or encourages those within the system to break the moral laws God revealed for his creatures, flourishing. Any system that requires or encourages us to defy the Creator by breaking his good commands. And so you go back to our understanding of what we saw the very first week from Micah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, one through eight what biblical justice is. It starts with seeing God as God. We are not seeing the equality of all people. And so when we form systems and organizations, if they promote, protect, injustice, oppressions, taking advantage of the of weaker people. He, he goes on to show that 
It, 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 is the implicit, it is this implicit biblical definition that empowered Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth, to subvert systems of American slavery, Sophie Scholl and Dietrich Bonhoeffer to resist the systems of Nazism, and Alexander, so- um, I can't say his name, anyway, you know who I'm talking about, and Vaclav Havel to undermine the systems of Soviet communism. There's an understanding here that that when we begin to recognize there is systemic injustice in the world, we can actually act. We can actually live just. We can actually fulfill God's commands on his people to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with him. But if we live in either of these two camps of the left and the right, at best, we have an incomplete view. At worst, we're living and promoting and participating in an unjust system. Listen, when people organize themselves, develop systems and structures, whether they're civic, whether they're social, whether they're commercial, even personal systems, if they reject God, reject the equality of all people, deny the sinfulness of sin, they will inevitably harm people instead of actually love them and help them. And here, right here, we have an example in the scripture. Now, I, I want to I guard us, though, before we turn there. I want to guard us. There's another error that I think we need to, to consider. There's, there's another way in which, in, in this idea of not denying either, we don't want to run to either of these extremes. But, but an extreme that we need to be on guard against is determining that every time we see injustice, there must be some systemic injustice behind it. As an example, Vody Bauckham writes in his book, he highlights this. According to a database maintained by the Washington Post, 96% of the 5,542 people killed by police since 2015 were men. So 96%, vast disparity, vast inequality, right? If we use the same logic employed by those who claim the black-white shooting stats prove racial bias, wouldn't we have to conclude that the overwhelming disparity in the male-female stats proves misandry. Cops hate men. Isn't that what we would have to conclude? Just because we see disparity, just because we see an unequal outcome, does not mean that there is systemic injustice at play. We don't want to go to that extreme, but we also want to avoid the other extreme that denies that it exists at all. And so here we are, looking at Jesus and watching him actually confront what appears to be systemic injustice. It's a significant moment in Jesus' ministry. As you look at what's going on in, in, in this moment, it's in the days following his triumphal entry. So he comes in to Jerusalem on a donkey's back. The, the crowds gather along the street. They're laying palm, palm fronds down. They're, they're singing and worshiping and Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're so excited. They receive him as a king. On entering Jerusalem, being received as a king, you might expect that he'd go to the palace and take his seat on the throne, but that's not where he goes. He goes to the temple. And when he goes into the temple, the very first thing we see him do in the temple on his arrival in Jerusalem, Mark and Luke both tell us this, 
He goes in the temple and he cleanses it. He drives out the merchants, the people who are selling animals to be sacrificed, and the money changers who are taking real money and giving people temple money that can only be spent in the temple. And he points out specifically, Mark points out specifically, the threat that this was to the, to the Jewish leaders, to the scribes, the Pharisees, and the, and, and, and the chief priests. In fact, in Mark 11, verse 18, you can flip over there and look at it if you'd like to. He, Mark writes this, the chief priests and the scribes heard it. They heard that he had cleansed the temple. They were seeking to destroy him. Together, they're working to kill Jesus. Systemic injustice. They were seeking to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. They were threatened by Jesus. Their way of life was threatened by Jesus. Their position of privilege was threatened by Jesus. And their answer was, destroy him. We've moved beyond individual responsibility to a whole system being involved. You get what I'm saying, what we're seeing. The next day, so Jesus leaves the temple after the cleansing of it. Next day, he returns to the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders, this is the, all the Jewish leadership, maybe the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. They confront him. They challenge his authority. They begin to test him and ask questions, seeking to trip him up and d- discredit him. And, and repeatedly, he demonstrates he does not answer to them. They aren't all they think they are. You can read that, Mark eleven twenty-seven 27 through 34. Then... Jesus comes to this point that we've just read. He comes to this point uh, where he focuses in specifically on the scribes who were experts in the law. They served as interpreters of and teachers of the law. So they were helping people understand how to live and apply God's law to life. And Jesus says to everyone listening in the temple that day, it's not the only day he said it, but certainly it's clear that he said it on this day, beware. Beware of them. Don't beware of this one. Don't beware of that one. Beware. And then he begins to lay it out. He begins to show us why. See, the scribes, they were respected leaders. They, 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 were, they were elevated. They were exalted in some way. But they were unjust. And the systemic injustice that these scribes were perpetrating on the rest of Jerusalem is broken down in, in the next couple of verses. Verses 38 through 40. He, he starts... And I think the first three we could classify as self-exaltation. Exalting self over others, um, taking advantage of others rather than serving others. There's self-exaltation. First is long, flowing robes. He addresses their dress, the way they dress themselves. That doesn't seem like a big deal. Is that a big deal to dress fancy? These long robes that they wore were, were reserved for religious activity, for formal acts of religious work, for formal moments of prayer. And they walked around in them as if they were the common dress. So that when people saw them, what would they assume of them? Oh, these are holy people. They're they're praying. They're doing religious stuff right now all the time. Look at them. There's special greetings. They, they, They liked, they even expected these special greetings in the marketplace. One, one commentary that I read from this week noted that when, when a scribe walked down the street or passed through a marketplace, everyone, with the exception of laborers, so maybe if somebody is, is uh, digging a ditch or something like that, with the exception of laborers, everyone was expected to rise before him. 
Now just imagine. You're walking down the street and everybody stands up as you come in. That feels pretty good. Right? And if they don't, they, they, they loved us. They, they liked it. They, they, they desired it. They wanted it. They had the best seats in the house. There, there's a way in which the society had begun to act in such a way that if, they were, if a person was throwing a party, they, they were inviting these scribes into the party so that they themselves were, were, were seen to be noble, but also so that they could then kiss up to the scribe and they'd give them the best seats. They had the best seats in the synagogues. They were, they were, they were exalting themselves, revering themselves at the expense of others. We really begin to see that in the next verse, in verse 40, where Jesus really draws out how all of this, although on the outside might appear noble, might appear like there's nothing wrong with it, but from the inside, it was all a sham. It was empty. It was hypocrisy. And we see that uh, dealing with the second one first. We're going to look at the, their pretense prayers. He says that they pray long with pretense. So the idea is they're saying a bunch of empty words. They don't mean them. They're just a show. They're, they're just an act. They weren't genuine. They weren't heartfelt. They weren't really praying to God. They were praying in front of people. They were acting as if they were praying in front of people so that they would be seen as very virtuous, very moral, very godly people. In a parallel passage recorded by Matthew, he doesn't display this exact set of events, but he does write about these things that happened between the time Jesus first entered the temple and then the time they finally actually went to kill him. He deals with this in a parallel passage, says it's slightly different, Matthew 23, 27 through 28, in a long list of woes to the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear Beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And then he comes to the place where he's like, it's not just these, uh, these pretense prayers, these prayers offered falsely. They're actually devouring widows' houses. And this is the first reason he gives. It's in verse 40 where, where he says... Uh, let me get there, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense pray long prayers, they will receive a greater condemnation. The idea here is that they're taking advantage of the weakest members of their culture. And it's firmly established, clear what God expected and how God commanded the Israelites to take care of the less fortunate, of the weaker brother. He says the, in the law, let's just look at the law, Exodus twenty two twenty two. you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. That's a command right there, right in the midst of the Mosaic law. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. I think devouring widows' houses, taking advantage of them and their livelihood, their ability to live, I think that qualifies as mistreating so these godly people are breaking the law. The Psalms, they point to this as an aspect of God's nature. Psalm 68, 5. Father of the fatherless, protector of widows, is God in his holy habitation. The prophets reminded Israel regularly of this. Isaiah 10, 1 through 2. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression. 
Turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people, to, to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil. These men devour widows' houses. They take advantage of them, remove their ability to live and thrive and function in the world. These men, these scribes who were put in place to be a blessing and to ensure they were served, were feeding off of them. But then Jesus sits down across from the treasury and he begins to watch. And this is followed, this, this condemnation, this, this judgment given is followed by an immediate illustration. Now, when I preached through this in Luke, we, we looked at the different camps that look at this verse. Some people look at this verse and say it's all about, or this passage, some people say it's all about money and how we should give. And then there's others that come to this passage about the widow and her giving and say it's not about money at all. And they have all these reasons of why that's all about just further condemnation and an illustration of Jesus' judgment against uh, the Jewish leaders and uh, what, what's coming in the passage to come. And in, in that time, in, in, that, in that sermon, I showed you why I believe it's actually both, right? I think there's, there's elements of both. And you can go back, you look it up, Luke. Uh, it's on our website if you want to go and listen to that. But I want to focus today on the fact that Jesus is using this to further demonstrate how these scribes, these leaders, this system of people who are intended and supposed to be serving God's people are actually feeding on them. He sits down across the across the, the way, across the courtyard from the treasury, and he looks and he sees many people putting in large sums of money, and then he sees this poor widow come and put in two small coins which make a penny. He calls his disciples, and he has a lesson for them in this. But it's no coincidence that Mark places this right between Jesus' condemnation of the whole Judaic, the whole Jewish leadership and the coming judgment that's coming to the temple. So Jesus condemns the scribes they will receive the greater condemnation. But he turns and commends this faithful widow for, for, for um, uh, her faithful, generous act. He shows the judgment that's coming. As we get to the next passage, he demonstrates that he sees her where everyone else thinks she's less. He shows that she's done more than all of them because they gave out of their abundance. She gave faithfully, sacrificially, generously. Now, this is just one example, right? This is just one example of systemic injustice in the Bible. I mean, we could, we could go and look at, at Daniel 6, King Darius signed into law, signed into law that if anyone prayed to anyone but him for 30 days, they'd be thrown into the lion's den. So you know the story? Who gets thrown in the lion's den? Kids, Gospel Project should have taught you this. Daniel, right? King Nebuchadnezzar, 
that says, hey, if you, if, if you do not bow and worship my statue, he signs this into law. He, you do not bow down and, and, and uh, worship my statue. You're into the fiery pit. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will not bow and worship. they thrown into the fiery pit. In New Testament times, Caesar was Lord. It was required, expected. Much of the persecution that came from Rome against the church was because they would not confess that Caesar is Lord. In the book of Acts, Demetrius led a whole riot. He called craftsmen together. He got the businessmen of Ephesus together. And he said, listen, Christianity is hitting our pocketbook. It's defaming our goddess Artemis. And, 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 and we can't have that. And so they draw together and systematize a protest and an injustice against Christians in that city. If you know the history, it didn't work, ultimately. They, they, they didn't uh, ultimately win. Ephesus became a center of Christianity, and ultimately from there, all of Asia heard the gospel. But they sought to bring persecution. They sought to stop it. They worked against God uh, and his people. It, 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 systemic injustice is it is, unfortunately, we don't like it when people say this, but systemic injustice, because we are all unjust people, is woven into the fabric of all of our systems. And I'm just going to tell you, I'm not woke. I, I, I will stand here all day long and I will show you the injustice of the system of organizations like Black Lives Matter. I will show you the injustice of ideologies like critical, any type of critical theory, critical race theory, critical theory of any kind, queer theory, feminist theory, all the, all the ways in which it's been applied and drawn out. But we have to be able to see, we need to recognize, unjust people build unjust systems, and they pervert what's good. That's, th- th- these these scribes, these, these Pharisees, these, these chief priests, these um, uh, leaders in Jerusalem, they took what was good. They took God's law, a perfect law, and they twisted it, perverted it for their own end, for their own selfish gain. This isn't in my notes, a, a way in which we need to be careful in this is, is that we don't want to then turn around and begin to, to heap condemnation the greater condemnation, the condemnation belongs to the leaders who did this. Who built this system, who established this perverted sense of justice. This is where I, 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 think, I think they go too far when, when some in Christianity would say that there's a corporate guilt for Israel. When Jesus clearly condemns the scribes, the Pharisees for their injustices. I think we need to avoid that error as well. But at the end of the day, what we see happen after Jesus leaving the temple doesn't just demonstrate the condemnation. It actually shows us the solution. So he leaves the temple in chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. He leaves the temple after all this has happened. he, he, He comes out and one of his followers tells him, look at this beautiful building. Look at what we're capable of. This is so amazing. The system that's been built. 
this kingdom that's being established, this moral and noble work that's been done. Look at its beauty. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Every system of justice that we build in our name, that we build for our own glory, that we build to exalt ourselves and advantage and privilege ourselves at the expense of others, is always going to be temporary. It's always going to meet God's judgment. I, 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 my, my point that I wrote out for this is, is well, I'm losing. Where is it at? Pretense prayers devoured. Oh, there it is. Systemic injustice has only one solution. God's justice provided in the gospel of a just king and a just kingdom. All the verses that follow in this next series of teachings is Jesus talking about his return and about the day he consummates and finally and fully establishes a just kingdom that will never end. God will bring justice. He will set right all those wrongs. He doesn't go to the widow and say, hey, widow, don't you know they're taking advantage of you? You need to burn this place down. You need to totally deconstruct this and set up a new system. God will bring justice. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Paul, Romans, you, you, in Romans, you do not repay evil with evil. God will bring justice. And he did in 70 AD when Rome was used. Another broken and unjust system Rome used to be judgment on Jerusalem. And they come in and the whole temple, the whole of Jerusalem is raised. I mean, it is burned to the ground. God will bring justice. God will judge justly. He will do justice. He will do mishpat, the rectifying justice. The wrongs that have been wronged against us or that we have wronged against others, only God can satisfy. And he has done that and is doing that through our King Jesus. If it wasn't through Jesus, we would be carrying it ourselves. And I don't think any of us want to be on the receiving end of his just judgment. God will judge justly. He will do mishpat because primarily he is righteous. All he does is right. All he does is good. There is no darkness. There is no evil. There is no sin in him. God will judge justly and God will justify all through who through faith in Jesus repent of their injustices. You don't see this immediately in this passage speaking of Jesus' return, although it's clearly implied and part of the broader teaching of Mark. In fact, when we see Jesus' public ministry begin in Mark, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then he walks from place to place showing the need for the gospel. Every person needs it. 
And the one system that you might look to and think would be just is shown to be unjust. It's discredited and they are told to beware of it and recognize its fallen nature. And then he shows us that judgment is coming. So, what are Christians to do in light of systemic injustice? That's if I've convinced you biblically that there is such a thing. What are Christians to do in light of systemic injustice? We'll get into more of this in about three weeks when we begin to really talk through that. Just to give you some sense of application today. Do justice. Do the just thing. Live righteously. We all, all, as God's people, personally responsible. We don't do justice because the system is just. We do, we do justice because God is just. And God has made us just. Regardless of what others do, we're to act in accordance with biblical justice. doesn't matter what anyone else does. It matters what you do. Now here's what would be beautiful about this. Imagine if we determine among ourselves that we are all going to strive to treat one another justly. Your leaders are going to seek to live justly and lead justly. What happens? We actually develop a just system. It would be beautiful. It would be amazing. But then one of us would sin against another. And the injustice of our system would be revealed. Even the church still needs to walk repentantly, trusting in Jesus Christ and him alone as our just king who is the one establishing his just kingdom. The church was never commanded to build God's kingdom, were we? I think disciples were going to deal with that in a second, but never commanded to be. He is building his kingdom. He is establishing his kingdom. Do justice. Second, love God, love others. Ironically enough, in just the few verses ahead of what we just read, Mark chapter 12, verses 29 through 31, ironically enough, Jesus is being tested by the scribes. What's the great commandments? Like, what do we do? You know, how are we supposed to live? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself there is no other, no other commandment greater than these. Love God, love others, do justice, love mercy, and make disciples. This is a central mission that Jesus left the church. This is central to, to what he's called us to. He didn't call us to sit around as bumps on a log and be navel gazers and thinking solely about ourselves. Right? We know the passages, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, to go and make disciples of all nations. He calls us to, Acts 1, 8, tells us to go and be witnesses everywhere we are to the ends of the earth. But this is so much more than just about getting people to heaven, isn't it? Because as we live that way now, as we make disciples, mature disciples, and mobilize disciples in this world, we actually begin to get to see a glimpse of what heaven will be like. We actually get to begin to see the dawn begin to break because his just people begin to act justly or as much as is possible. So we make disciples. This is our primary way, the, the primary way in which we see 
systems and structures change. In Table Talk magazine, the devotional magazine by, published by Ligonier Ministries, Grover Gunn, who's a Presbyterian pastor, wrote, Our primary means of transforming the world is through proclaiming the gospel. We must today never question the effectiveness of the gospel message as the cutting edge of positive social change. There's all kinds of answers being thrown out there, what we should be doing. Go feed the poor, uh, uh, clothe the the needy, um, take care of widows and orphans. Those are all good things, and they are, according to James, they are right and noble religion, pure religion. But they should never be absent of us seeking to live, to, to see disciples made. In his book, Facing Issues Facing Christians, John Stott agrees. He writes, evangelism is the major instrument of social change. For the gospel changes people, and changed people can change society. Unjust people build unjust systems, and they pervert even just things to be unjust. How in the world are we going to make anyone live justly? Laws don't do it. They just displace injustice. Right? The only way that we can see a person who's unjust begin to act justly is to see them begin to follow Jesus Christ and mature in that faith. So we go and we evangelize and we make disciples and we disciple those who we evangelize and we see them mature and we grow, see them grow up and then we see, send them out and we say, we must all be going to this end. We can and should participate in all kinds of social programs and serve the oppressed. Absolutely, that's doing justice. But that by itself is not doing justice and it will not justify anyone. So do justice, love God, love others, and make disciples. Let's pray.